Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. And so we've been, we last week we looked at, and we're going to look, continue to look at this week, his most classic parable that maybe most people are familiar with, often called the parable of the prodigal son. And in this parable, he's telling us that the big question in Christianity is not, will you stop doing your bad things and start doing good things? And he's also saying that the big question in Christianity is not, are you a Christian-y type of person or a non-Christian-y type of person? But rather, the big question in Christianity is, have you found a home? How will you look for a home? And in some ways, he's actually even saying, do you have a good reason to party? When you read these parables, not a short-sighted hope for a small party about a small thing, but do you have a view of reality that takes in the story and the account of all things that are present and have happened in the world, good and bad, in your life and abroad? Do you have an account of that and a hope that looks at all of that and says, there's something good that could possibly happen here? Because if you have an account or a hope or a story that makes sense of all reality that gives us hope, then you have a true and transcendent reason to party. And the Bible ends in a party. So the real question is, do you have a home and do you have a reason to party? That's what Jesus is actually asking in this parable. I'm going to read it again. We read it last week, but I'm going to read the whole parable again, then we'll talk about it. And the audience Jesus is addressing, I'll read the first, uh, chapter 15, 1 and 2, and then go to the parable. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. These are the immoral, irreligious people. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious officials, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's into those, that audience, those two groups of people, he tells this story. There was a man that had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country and squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the, that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But he came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. 
I've never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story, and we see ourselves all over it. And I pray, dear God, that we would see you in it. And pray that you would sow this story deep in our imaginations and in our hearts, and we would find um, a hope we didn't even think was possible. Please be with us, Holy Spirit. Please soften our hearts to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So when, I, when the word sin comes up, all right, when I say that, we all have a bunch of reactions, just the word sin. And maybe when some of us feel guilt, right? We think about rules and we think about commandments and sin is kind of breaking these rules. And when I say sin, we think of things we did or said or thought that were ugly and we don't like recalling the way it makes us feel. Maybe when you hear that word sin, you feel smug because that word is dated and it's oppressive. And you're beyond that. It's arrogant. You know that word's been used to hurt people, uh, to abuse people, to make people, maybe even yourself, feel guilty when you don't think you should have. Uh, maybe you feel confused when I say sin. I don't know what it means. Do we? Do people use that word anymore? Is it helpful? Is it applicable? Some of us feel angry. Uh, angry because we recall immediately how we've been sinned against, or there's deep pain done to us by another. And we probably all think on some level about God, maybe positively because he opposes sin, maybe, maybe negatively. Why, why is he so uptight and adamant about this thing called sin? And if I asked us to kind of put together a definition of sin, I'm guessing most of us kind of would all together collectively define sin along the lines of our immediate instinct is it's some kind of misbehaving. There are rules And it is breaking those rules. It's misbehaving. And what's happening in this parable is it's coming along and it's frustrating our simplistic way of thinking about things like sin and thinking about the way God interacts with things like sin. Because what we did last week is we examined the the story of the younger son. We're looking at the older son this week. What we did last week is we looked at the, the story of the younger son and on the surface, he fits our model definition of sin. And Jesus doesn't deny that. The younger son, he goes off and he lives a life of debauchery and he's lost. And when he does, uh, and when he gets lost, we're like, yep, that's exactly how Jesus would talk about sin. That kind of living. And we're modern and we're more sophisticated and we're, we're culturally more sensitive. And we're skeptical of this kind of definition of sin. And so in our enlightened age, what we're, what we, what our tendency to do is, is to make that definition smaller and smaller. Jesus had a long list. He's a first century Jew in a very conservative world. He was obviously very religious. So he probably had a very long list of all the rules that involved sin, that if you broke, you were in sin. And so our instinct now is to, well, let's shorten that list. We're more sensitive now. We're more understanding now. We're more tolerant now. And what's frustrating about this parable is that Jesus doesn't shorten the list of sin. He doesn't narrow the definition of sin. What he's doing in this parable is he's broadening it. 
He's actually expanding the definition of sin beyond simply rule-breaking. And our instinct, right, when you hear that, is to think, okay, that's just like religious people do. Right? The, uh, I came to RUF. RUF is that kind of Christianity. Right? Maybe you're like, I don't know if I belong here. They're the kind of Christianity that believes an even bigger definition of sin. How long is the list going to get? Right? I bet it's huge. I bet y'all watch Fox News or something like that. You probably don't listen to the hip-hop music, right? right? We just, the list keeps getting longer and longer. But that kind of reaction means that you haven't heard the story yet. And this is the biggest point that Jesus is making. This is the summary statement of really all three parables. There are actually three parables told in a row. A parable of a lost sheep, of a lost coin, and a lost son. And all three parables, I mentioned this last week, end in a party. And the party is the party of the shepherd and the woman and the father. It's actually their party about their joy. And Jesus' really big point is this. The possibility of really rich, true, and lasting joy, and I mean the good kind of joy, not just the joy of getting into Stanford, not just the joy of getting accepted somewhere, not just the joy of getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend or getting on your life dreams. Those joys are small and they're good. I'm not dismissing them. But real rich joy that secures you and makes you whole as a person, the possibility of that joy to get there, we have to radically rewrite our definition of sin. If you want to be, in very simple terms, if you want to be happy, you actually need a bigger definition of sin. Jesus is speaking to both types of people here, right? The classic sinners and the religious uptight people. And those people represent all of us. And we have elements of both of those people in all of us, right? The two kind of worlds of humanity that we see clashing on social media, in the public square, whatever it is, right? The rule breakers and the rule followers. The liberals and the conservatives. The religious and the irreligious. The two fundamental approaches to the world are do what you want. That's the path to peace and enlightenment. Or follow the rules. That's the path path to peace and enlightenment. And Jesus is saying that the discord and the strife and the violence and the oppression and the anger and the anxiety and the fear and the insecurity that we all experience, broadly culturally, but also just this weekend, has little to do with the fact that the other side just doesn't get how right you are. That's, the, the problem is not that the other people, unlike you, don't get how right you are. Jesus is saying that y'all have to see, that we all have to see, that we're both lost in the same way. That the nature of humanity, that the love of God, that the possibility of having a true eternal home in which you are deeply loved, in which you are accepted, in which you are truly valued, it doesn't come by self-discovery, the classic sinners, right? And it doesn't come by rule-keeping, the religious conservatives. And so he tells this story to both of these audiences, of this son who goes off and lives in debauchery, the classic sinner. And, and, he, and he hits rock bottom, and he, and he formulates a plan. He says, I'm, I'm at rock bottom. I know because of what I've done, because there's no way I could identify as being a part of the father's family. I can't presume on that, but at least if I come back to the father, maybe I can say, if I work, will you pay me like a hired servant? And maybe that's the way you come to God. If I promise to do better, I've hit rock bottom. I can't know myself among the Christian-y church people, right? But if I promise to do better, can I score some happiness? And so the younger son comes back to the father, and he starts his speech. We talked about this last week, so I'm going over it very quickly. And the, the dad doesn't even let him finish his speech. 
The dad doesn't shame him. He doesn't preach to him. He doesn't give him conditions for being in the household after everything he's done. The dad says, put my finest robe on him, put my ring on him, put my shoe, my sandals on him. These are all marks of sonship, restoring him to full status in the house. And then the dad throws a party. And now, this week we're talking about the older son. And we're, we're talking about what he felt like when he saw this happen. So verse 25, he draws near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed by his father and he's embarrassed for his father and he's disgusted. And he asks his servant, what is going on? And the servant unfolds the scene of what just happened. That this immoral son, the idiot son, the one who shamed the family, the one who quite literally lost their wealth on drugs and prostitutes, half of the family's wealth. Everybody knew it. Even the younger son knew that when he came back, he needed to hang his head in shame. And so he came hanging his head in shame. And the father would not shame him, and the father did not preach to him, and the father did not set conditions for his return. The father ran to him. And restored him, and he said, you are my son. And he killed the fatted calf. And you only have one of those. And they're big enough to feed the whole village. Something outlandish is happening right here. I, I was talking to a friend the other day, um, and they went to, or they, their, a friend of a friend went to a garden party in someone's backyard. And the guy throwing the party said, I want Dave Matthews to play at my garden party. And the guy went and got Dave Matthews and had Dave Matthews' band set up in his backyard and play a concert for him and his, like, 25 friends. Right? There's a band at this party. Some, uh, this, that's the scene. The Dave Matthews band is playing for the younger son. It is outlandish. The whole village sees it and is partaking in it. And we're not entering into this story until we're pissed. Because the, the younger son abused the father's generosity. The father was generous when he shouldn't even have even been generous, letting the son go and do that. The younger son was selfish, and he was immoral, and he was disgraceful, and he was lazy, and he shamed the family. And the older son did what every rational person would do. He refused to go in, and he refused to endorse the worst parenting job ever. Right? Imagine your friend who failed out of UC Davis and got the ATOs kicked off campus because he was selling heroin out of the basement. And his dad's like, you know what, son, that's all right. I'm going to make you a VP at my hedge fund. Right? You're working your tail off at Stanford trying to survive. That's all right, son. That's all right, sweetheart. Here's $20 million to start your startup. You know what? Go to Aspen for a year and just recoup, stay at the house, <laughs> right? And I'm going to hire Dave Matthews to come play at the house in Aspen. <laughs> After he failed out of UC Davis for selling drugs out of fraternity house, right? That makes Stanford and all your attempts to kill it at Stanford really frustrating, doesn't it? The dad has killed the fattened calf and hired Dave Matthews. And he sees the one son who's been loyal, who's made good decisions, 
He sees him standing outside, and the dad goes out to that son, and he pleads with him. He's saying, you've got to come. Your brother is home. And the older son, with righteous indignation, and y'all, that's the funnest thing to feel, is righteous indignation. He says, my whole life I've done everything right. I've worked hard. Actually, the Greek there is, I've slaved for you. And you wouldn't even let me and my friends rent a movie and order Papa John's. He, has, he only even asked for a goat. There's an, we're supposed to read a massive disparity between those two things. What is Jesus doing here? He's telling us this. You've got to stop thinking that sin is just misbehaving. That sin is an unwillingness to be loved by God. Sin is the unbelief that the love of God could be this good. That's what sin is. Sin is the belief that the love of God couldn't be free. And the younger son looked at the father and looked at the world and said, I'm going to find wholeness and salvation and rest and identity and a home out there, looking out for myself, doing what I want, discovering myself. And when your guiding principle is self-love and self-exploration, you get lost. But the Father's welcome is always held out for you. And His love does not require shame. His love removes shame. But what does the older son believe about the Father? He believes the Father should love him because of how good he's been as a son. The Father's love is conditioned on obedience and rule following, being in control, saying no to impulses. You do that... And then you can expect to get what you want from the Father. And so the religious people grumbled at Jesus' friendship with immoral people. And the older son refused to go in. And we are angry with the possibility of this kind of kindness and this kind of goodness from God because we have built our sense of self and our identity and our image and our confidence on how we've chosen to act over against the way other people have chosen to act. And that sense of self has just been eviscerated. He doesn't let us think that we are better than other people. And when you find out you can't think you're better than other people, that's the worst feeling in the world. We've got to have some people we can think we're better than. Because, right, I am Stanford. I am moral. I am religious. I'm I'm tolerant. I'm a tolerant kind of person. I'm a liberal kind of person. I'm a diligent person. I am better. I work hard. I overcome. I exercise. I am likable. And I keep the rules. Who am I if I am not those things? Who are you if you don't have those things to hang on? Who am I if it's not recognized that I am those things? Who am I if God can love people who aren't those things? And love them in this manner. Because I should be appreciated and I should be praised and I should be loved and rewarded on the basis of what I've made of myself. We're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. And what this reveals is very interesting. This reveals that we don't believe we're inherently valuable. We don't believe that we're valuable simply because we're human or simply because you are you or because you're made in God's image regardless of 
whether you're a Stanford student or a prostitute, whether you're from the ghetto or Palo Alto, addicted or upright, responsible or foolish, thin or fat, smart or dumb, what this reveals is that we believe that value and love and dignity, it is earned. There is a scale. We're all judging the world with our little rules, and we've custom-built our rules for our lifestyle. And there's need, this is not a problem with liberals or a problem with conservatives. We all have our rules, and we all judge the world with those rules. This is revealed in the fact that we all want to serve the homeless, but the prospect of actually having a genuine friendship with the homeless is impossible. We can't relate to them authentically as people because we still think we're better than them. That's why we're stilted. We can't have conversation with them. That's because it's awkward. Because we actually don't grant them dignity and respect. We really just like the way we feel when we serve them. We have rules. And we rank people. And we can't treat everybody equal. And the older son is outside the party. And the older son is lost. Not because he's bad, but because he's really good at keeping his rules. Because he thinks the only reason a parent could actually give a child good things is if the child's ledger is filled up with enough good works. And the older son actually betrays the whole nature of love. The marks of the older son are things like jealousy. The belief that God grades on a scale and you haven't been rewarded properly yet. And other people have been rewarded unfairly. Why does it work out for them? Why do they have the things I want? When I've been doing everything that should have gotten me that. Marks of the older son is it creates an us versus them worldview. You get to neatly divide the world between the right sort of people and the wrong sort of people, between people who deserve and who don't. And when you believe that it's not by grace that you're loved or welcomed or forgiven or restored, but by virtue of your hard work and your determination and your winning personality, that's the place where oppression is born, is when you think you're an outstanding person, more outstanding than others. Because you've begun to rank people. And you will always denigrate those people who don't follow, fall into your elevated categories of worthiness. The categories of... They can be any kind of category. Religious enough or irreligious enough. Conservative enough or liberal enough. Moral enough, tolerant enough, cool enough, thin enough, rich enough. The older son's angry. Because you look at the world and you say, I am owed things by God. And the older son's insecure because we've been keeping a ledger our whole life. And if you keep a ledger and think God and the world are going to reward you according to your tabulations, you're going to be constantly looking around and be insecure because there are other people doing better than you. And the irony of self-righteousness is that it always leaves us unsure if we're lovable. The hardest thing for good people and for religious people to believe is that God likes them. He really likes, he actually enjoys you. Look to the places where you're afraid. That tells you where you trust enough work and diligence to give you peace in life. Look to the places that you're hiding in your life. That tells you where you believe you've disqualified yourself from the Father's love. And the last mark of the older son is he can't party. For the older son, worship is empty. Because the party, worship, from beginning to end in Scripture, is God's enjoyment of His people. There's supposed to be good drink and good food at these festivals. And the Bible ends in a party. 
And party and worship are almost synonymous in Scripture. But the older brother always engages in this thing called worship, asking, what do I get out of this if I do it? So worship is not enjoying God. It's actually trying to curry His favor. And if worship is just about currying God's favor, then guess what it is? It's work and not love. And the, the older son fundamentally, he misunderstands the one key center of true love, namely that love can only be freely given. It can never be earned. Wages are earned and slaved for. Love is given. And both sons actually treat their boss, uh, their father, like a boss. They both resented their father. They both wanted to maneuver to position to get the father's stuff. Neither wanted the father himself. Both were using the father to get what their hearts were really set on, which is not him but his stuff. Both of them were lost because it never, it will never be the case that the father's stuff makes a home. What makes a home a home is the Father's love, the Father Himself. Now, if, if you haven't seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, you should. It's amazing. It's emotionally hard to watch. It's a great movie. It came out two or three years ago. And it's about these, just, these sad rural people in Louisiana. It's fictional. Um, and it follows this father and this daughter through these horrible circumstances, just squalor. They're on the edges of society, uh, literally, quite literally living in a shack on the swamp in this community. And what's amazing about the movie is the girl, when she was actually acting in the movie, she was, how old was she? Six or five years old. And she was nominated for Best Actress, not Supporting Actress, Best Actress with this performance. And what's amazing about this girl is in these horrible conditions where the father has actually absolutely nothing to give the daughter... All they have is each other's affection. And what's amazing about the movie is the fierce confidence and love that the daughter has. You see this person who has nothing but the love of their father. And she seems so much stronger than all of us. This, it, it, their lifestyle is like, it's deplorable. But what is sweet is that she had nothing but the father's love. And it made her this incredibly fierce, secure person. I think the person we all want to be. I'm going to close just by talking about parties because when you read all of chapter 15, which you should go out and read the other parables, you actually realize the point is the party. That there, these are three stories of parties about finding lost things. And we love to party. And we find all sorts of excuses to party. And so we find things like birthdays and like weddings and like weekends. And if we can't find a good excuse to party, we'll just make up an excuse to party, right? We'll just have a random, like, 70s night. And then we got to have a party, right? It's probably like 90s night now. But it was 70s for me in college. But we were actually, the reason why is because we were actually made to party. That something is in us is, is pushing us to party. And so if we don't have a good reason why, we'll just make up an empty reason why. And the younger son throws hollow parties. Right? Parties without substance. Parties that are not centered around something worth celebrating. He's just like, I got a party. It's in our DNA. It's, right. it's, it's actually in our creational order. God gave it to us. 
And so he parties, but with no purpose. And so he's left hungover, maybe hungover physically, but psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. And you can only party that way without something to party around for so long until the hollowness of that party eventually hits you. And that's what happens to the younger son. Because a party that doesn't have something around which it celebrates is actually just a mimicry or a bastardization or a facsimile of a party. And that's the younger son, and maybe that's a lot of us. And if the younger son throws hollow parties, the older son throws lame parties. Right? He asked for a goat. <laughs> None of us are going to the party that has the goat. Right? And he can't party because there's too many irresponsible people in the world. Celebration is irresponsible. There's work to be done. And that kind of happiness is suspect. And maybe it's even too close to the wrong kind of partying that we don't want to be too close to. And on some level, probably a lot of us don't think we've earned the party yet. We're actually afraid of someone celebrating us. God's invitation to us in this text, His invitation to the older son, is into the true party. The true party says, I'm a fool, I'm obsessed with myself and all my selfishness and my narcissism has led me to dark places, eventually to the pig pen. I'm like an orphan, I'm homeless, I've been looking for anything to make me feel a part of something. And to the younger son, God the Father runs to you and he says, I will take your shame. And I will take your sin. You are my son. You once were lost. You are my daughter. You once were lost. But now you're found. God's party is a celebration around the restoration between you and him. That is what is at the center of his party. Far from hollow. It's a very full party. And the bigger you understand that work of restoration to be, the more you see how far we were from God and at what great cost he covered that distance that he runs to you. And here's the thing about God's party. The guilt has to be taken away. And the shame has to be taken away. And the filth in and on us has to be taken away. He doesn't permit those things into His party. And so in order to take those things away so that they will haunt you no more, Jesus takes them from you and takes them to the grave. So those things are never haunting you in God's party. Little sin requires a little Savior and results in little parties. Big sin needs a big Savior and it results in huge parties. And the key to a great party, the real first ingredient, the very first thing, is to lament over how lost we are. Because only then can we begin to comprehend how far Jesus came to save us. The Bible ends in a party because God, by His grace, restores even people like me and even people like you. The younger son struggles to believe he can be restored and welcome to the party. The older son doesn't think he needs to be restored, so he stands outside of the party. And he judges the party because he hasn't wept over his form of sin. The false belief that God the Father could not be this good. And the story ends with the older son standing outside of the party. And we're to read it, and Jesus told it to make people wonder, what will he do? Is he going to come into the party? Will he lay down his sense of how we think, our sense of how we think God ought to be more measured and more reticent and more cautious with his grace? This is ridiculous. He ought to be more measured and cautious with who he invites in the party. Will we lay that down 
our judgment of God. Last week we said repentance for the younger son looks like laying down or despairing of our self-seeking lifestyle. Repentance for the older brother in us is setting aside our high thoughts about ourselves, coming into the Father's presence with empty hands, and just letting Him say to you, You are my son. You are my daughter. Leave your resume at the door. Because in a family, resumes don't matter. They don't do anything in families. We're just celebrating that you're my child. Will you come in? Us Christians, myself included, we can get so depressed about trying to be a Christian and so upset because we think that the main thing in Christianity is about feeling things for God and doing things for God. And that's the main thing in Christianity. And we feel bad about how little we can do how little we can feel and how little we can do. Jesus is trying to get you to stop for a second and listen to this story and see that Christianity is about the way God feels about you and what God does for you. Let's pray.